Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Worldview Wednesday on the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm your host, Nathan Oblack. And I'm joined today by Dr. Joe Boot and Ryan Aris. And today, uh, we're going to discuss the concepts of freedom and liberty and why these concepts ought to be of critical concern for the Christian. Here at the Institute, we've been trying to hammer this point home for a long time now, uh, that restricting our freedoms and liberties will lead, uh, and I think now we're seeing that they certainly have led, to significantly negative consequences in society. To help us get started with this conversation, I'd like to read from a popular news story from last week. Uh, And last week, you you may have seen this, but the World Health Organization uh, was making the case that lockdowns are absolutely not a viable solution in dealing with this pandemic. Uh, A Dr. David Nabarro, he's the Director General of the World Health Organization, made an appeal to world leaders telling them to stop using lockdowns as your primary control method of the coronavirus. He also claimed that the only thing lockdowns achieved was poverty, with no mention of the potential lives saved. And I'm going to quote Dr. Navarro here. Quote, lockdowns have one consequence that you must never, ever belittle, and that is making poor people an awful lot poorer. Just look at what's happened to the tourism industry in the Caribbean, for example, or in the Pacific, because people aren't taking their holidays. Look what's happened to smallholder farmers all over the world. Look what's happening to poverty levels. It seems that we may well have a doubling of world poverty by next year. We may well have at least a doubling of child malnutrition, end quote. So just to reiterate what I was saying earlier, uh, We here have been resisting the implementation of government restrictions from the beginning, uh, believing that this type of response would be much worse than the virus itself. Uh, As students of the word of God, um, why why is this now proving to to be the case on many different levels? Well, it's an interesting development, isn't it? Um, I was reading the same story uh, over the weekend and most of the commentators that I was reading uh, are seeing this as an about turn um, by the World Health Organization. I mean, at the very least, I think we can say that the uncertain sound of that institution over the last uh, six to eight months, um, if you were to look back over the things that have been said and collated them together, whether it's about masks, the seriousness of the illness, um, predictions about lethality, uh, and now lockdowns. It's been a pretty confusing picture. And I think in the end, it led to the United States withdrawing support from the World Health Organization. So it's not a trusted institution, particularly um, in North America, at least for uh, some of those reasons. But I was very interested to read it because to me, and I sent a note to a doctor in Europe who I've been discussing these issues, um, uh, discussing these issues with for some time now, we're coming from a pretty different perspective. I sent a note to him saying, um, you know, this is, uh, I'm glad to see the WHO finally uh, 
capturing some common sense here. And uh, it's uh, I so I do see this as something of an about turn. I don't think they've been clear on this at all in the past, and that's precisely why it's become so newsworthy. I mean, <laughs> these outlets wouldn't be running with it if it weren't for the fact this seems now to be. Why couldn't this have been said with clarity six months ago? And could we not have been spared the devastation that's been caused? And I'm particularly pleased to see reference in his comments to the ultimate victims of all of this, which is the poor and the disadvantaged. So all those people talking about taking the moral high ground and this being the this being loving one's neighbor, this being the position that truly cares for the neighbor and respects the neighbor and so forth to to have these draconian measures in place. We're talking about a doubling of world hunger, of world poverty. Uh, the catastrophic consequences of this are becoming clearer and clearer. Um, you know, this is not a platform that we use to say, I told you so, but I told you so. And we said this for, we said this from the very first article that we published on the subject back in March or April, whenever it was, that this was a cure that was worse than the disease. I think that was actually the title of the article. And it is, it's on the one hand, encouraging to see that this, this, these kinds of statements are coming out of the World Health Organization now. On the other hand, it's profoundly discouraging because, as I'm sure you're going to point to in a moment, Nathan, the consequences for people who are much closer to home in Toronto um, not just over the other side of the world in the developing world are having their lives decimated. And so when, when you're in a situation, to your question, when we're in a situation where uh, you appear to be confronting a crisis, some of the variables and the circumstances are unknown, just like they were at the beginning of this crisis, um, what do you do? How, how do you respond? How do you act? Well, for the Christian, it must be that when you don't know, really fully understand what's going on around you, the first thing you do is obey the word of God. You come to the word of God and you say, what are the principles that universally apply in our lives, even in the face of unknown circumstances? No, no matter how um, traumatic those circumstances may, may be, it was once said, and I forget who said this now, I said, who said, um, um, if, I, if I'm locked up in a prison, give me candle and a Bible, and I will tell you what the whole world is doing. So uh, if you can, with a sober mind, and I think we called for at the very beginning of this, uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of sound mind. And as we look at scripture, Nathan, we see that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, that the story of scripture is always one of from slavery to freedom, whether you look back to the Exodus or whether you're looking at the exodus that Christ accomplishes for us. Uh, and there is never a point in which Scripture says slavery and servitude is the direction in which we should move if you are in a position of fear, fear for your life, fear for your health. Uh, and so this movement in the direction of authoritarianism um, a move against liberty, against freedom of assembly, against freedom of worship, against freedom of movement, against freedom even of speech in some instances for doctors trying to talk about uh, certain issues. That's never the right direction because the direction of the word of God is always from servitude to freedom. 
Uh, we don't use our freedom, the apostle says, as a cover-up for evil, um, but we are to live as free men. And so that was our concern as an institute from the beginning in this, is that hang on a second. You know, whatever might be taking place, we cannot uh, take away wantonly, arbitrarily, people's freedoms because we're afraid of something. That cannot be the right course. And the result we're seeing now is economic ruin and all kinds of devastation in people's lives. So it's a lesson for us, isn't it, to always begin with Scripture and ask ourselves soberly, what does the Word of God have to say? Mm. And just to speak to what you had just said about uh, rather than looking for freedom in Christ and now uh, becoming willing slaves of the state in many cases, we're seeing the negative consequences, like you said, play out really close to home. Uh, one of the uh, stories uh, that we uh, had heard of last week is uh, a very uh, famous and enduring restaurant in Toronto, actually Toronto's first beer and pizza pub. Uh, opened about 30 years ago, Brass Taps uh, ended up having to close its door because of the pandemic. And uh, a very telling quote uh, from the owners of, of Brass Taps, and they speak directly uh, to, I think, uh, what we're talking about, the negative consequences of these restrictions that we're seeing. So I just want to go through some of the things that this, uh, this couple that owns this restaurant had spoken about. But I'm going to quote them here, quote, the pandemic hit, we strapped in willing to fight for our business as long as we could, but being closed for five months and having rent, property taxes, water and utilities still needing to be paid, the math didn't add up. Normally to cover costs, we need to operate close to our capacity, but with dining restrictions and customer COVID fears, it is impossible to operate. My husband, Will, and I met, married and raised our boys here. Brass Taps has been our life and livelihood, right? And of course, now they're closed. Um, but again, we continue to follow this narrative that if we are wearing a mask, if we are socially distancing, this is how we ought to love our neighbor. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think I read as well this past week that I thought that famous Canadian hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, uh, restaurant has closed down permanently as well. So it doesn't appear to, to matter what kind of financial resources people have available. We're just talking about one sector, of course, the, um, the food industry. But the, um, the devastation across the board is going to take time, of course, for the real effects of all of this to trickle down into other aspects of the uh, economy. Um, when, for example, these restaurants start closing down, the jobs that they were holding open through the various bailout schemes, all that bailout money that the taxpayer has had to, to fork out terms of its future commitments um, has now effectively gone to waste because they can't sustain the business those jobs will go and uh, how many for how many commercial offices is this going to be true for how many um, uh, uh, restaurants is this going to be true um, the the list goes on and it's it's tragic to to read about it the the um, one of the definitions of madness is um, doing the same thing uh, constantly and expecting a different outcome. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, this, this, this desire to repeat the same thing with these disasters that are ensuing and expect some kind of long-term rosy outcome uh, seems to me to be a, a definition of, of madness and uh, how this can be construed as loving one's neighbor. 
um, I really don't know. Joe, we were talking uh, earlier today about the uh, the contrast here. So we, we've talked about lockdowns before, but in a previous episode, we were talking primarily about uh, what how how the church ought to respond, how pastors, how Christians, as as church members, ought to uh, ought to think about and respond to to a lockdown situation. Here, we're talking more broadly about individual liberties, and you had mentioned that. Uh, this this is not a new thing that uh, actually mo- most of the liberties that uh, that we enjoy that we have often taken for granted were enshrined in a document called the Magna Carta. And just for for everyone's sake, maybe you could just start by saying a little bit about what what is the Magna Carta? Why do we? What, how does it uh, how does it have a bearing on the current situation? Sure. So. Uh, originally 1215, um, the barons to King John uh, drafted uh, a statement of liberties and freedoms that they were insisting upon. That the originally this this turned out to be something of a of a failure, um, but it was uh, essentially redrafted or represented, tweaked again and again, and utilized again and again. So the, so so Magna Carta, sometimes called the Great Charter, is really the foundation of the English constitution of the British constitution and thereby of the Canadian constitution. In fact, you could argue really of the, of the American constitution as well for the, for the Anglosphere. So it's a critically um, important document, a critically significant document. Um, I was, uh, I, I, th- I thought it would be worthwhile plugging a book actually to our, to our listeners today uh, on Magna Carta published by Wilberforce Publications, one of our kind of partner uh, organizations uh, in the UK, Christian Concern, who we work with um, frequently and who typically publish um, our Ezra, or at least some of our Ezra books uh, as well in the UK under Wilberforce Publications. Their book is called Magna Carta Unraveled, The Case for Christian Freedoms Today. That's Wilberforce Publications, well worth a read. And um, Philip Quemby is one of the, um, the essayists in the book, um, and he says this, the Great Charter was frequently confirmed or reissued by some counts on as many as 40 separate occasions, the last during the reign of Henry VI in 1423. Each reissue came to encompass and consolidate the steady growth of freedoms, which were built on its original wording, which was the 2015 wording. And 1215. Sorry, what did I say? 2015? <laughs> Thank you. I think I've said 215 and and uh, 2015 now, so 1215, um, uh, he goes on, the very idea of having King John seal a charter was largely the brainchild of the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, Stephen Langton. So this, uh, Ryan, is actually, um, again, was something initiated by Christians, by the church, uh, who based the charter, I'm quoting again, sealed at Runnymede on 15th of June, 1215, on the so-called Coronation Charter, which had been issued by Henry I over a century beforehand, that coronation charter had promised to abide by the laws of King Edward. These laws of Edward the Confessor incorporated earlier Saxon codes, including those of King Alfred the Great, and so Magna Carta preserves a direct link to Saxon England. Why is that important? And I think our listeners are used to a fairly heavy intellectual diet by now, so I think they can cope with a a quotation at a little more length. I think they can. If if um, Mark Levin can do it on Patriot Radio, I think our listeners can handle it, right? 
Uh, Firstly, he says, Saxon legal codes made it clear that kings were subject to the law, a fact of which church leaders did not hesitate to remind them when necessary. If I can interject there, the Niagara Declaration, which we drafted three or four weeks ago now, gaining signatures from across the country, which deals with the liberties of the church in particular. So we're in that tradition. Uh, We're in the tradition of the Great Charter with the Niagara Declaration. By placing the ruler under the same constraints as everyone else, Saxon law carried within itself the promise of rights for the common man, and thus not only the seed of what Magna Carta eventually grew to become, but also the germ of democracy itself. Rights for the common man, uh, because if a king was subject to the law, the corollary was that a subject could rely on the same law to protect him in his dealings with the state. So the subject had rights which the state could not override. And then Quimby goes on to explain that the uh, King Alfred's laws, the laws of King Alfred, begin with the Ten Commandments, something I point out in Mission of God and various other laws of the Old Testament. And he says, by putting God's law first and man's law second, they recognize that law is not simply what we choose to make it, but is answerable to a higher moral standard based on and derived from the Bible And in fact, the idea that a ruler is subject to the law is set out clearly in Scripture. And the relevance of this continued well on into the period of the English Revolution in the 1640s and Oliver Cromwell, because they claimed the authority of the Charter in their rebellion. So this is a foundational, sort of foundational importance. You can look at um, uh, the first clause of the of the charter is about the freedoms of the church. And then, Ryle, I'm sure you've got one or two that you want to point out, but I wanted to draw attention particularly to clause 29, which speaks directly to the current situation in Canada and much of the West today. No free man shall in future be arrested or imprisoned or diseased of his freehold, liberties or free customs, or outlawed or exiled or victimized in any other way Neither will we attack him or send anyone to attack him except by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land, so in terms of a jury of his peers. So we could talk for for ages about Magna Carta, but this is why it's such a significant document and is is considered to be the foundation of constitutional freedoms um, in the Anglosphere. Terrific. Yeah, thanks, Joe. So it's not, uh, in our day and age, it's not, the law of the land as such, but it does have, uh, it does set precedent. I think it does, it does have sort of moral authority and sort of cultural uh, authority in the, in the minds of citizens. Well, it's behind glass in various um, museums, right? The copies of this in various parts of the West, which it's a revered document. So as you say, um, not, specifically law of the land you look through some of these and they're about bridges over rivers and all kinds of easements for barons and etc etc but it gives us the fundamentals the foundations of freedom yeah exactly and one of the uh one of the clauses that uh, that really jumped out to me and i'll uh, i'll read it back for us here uh, in in light of our discussion today on individual liberty clause number 30 says all merchants unless they've been previously and publicly forbidden are to have safe and secure conduct in leaving and coming and in staying and going throughout the land, both by land and water, to buy and sell without any evil exactions according to the ancient and right customs. And so on. But uh, what it, uh, the, the reason that that sticks out to me is that we're, t- we're talking about 
liberty again today. And in any discussion of liberty, if you want to assert a liberty, you're also implying necessarily some kind of risk. You know, whether that's uh, if you're if in, in the, uh, the case that, uh, that I'm mentioning here about a merchant, you, you have the liberty to start a business and risk it failing. You have the, the liberty to publish something under freedom of speech and freedom of conscience and risk criticism and censure for, for your opinions there. You know, you have more to the point, you've got liberty to choose who you're going to visit and associate with and risk getting a disease. And I guess the, the, the question in all of this to consider is, what is, what is a biblical principle, if we get back to the word, for weighing uh, and assessing and managing liberty versus risk? Well, it's interesting that um, we talk about um, balancing freedom and risk or, or, or liberty and risk, um, because in many respects, uh, freedom really uh, means responsibility. And the risk that you're talking about is about a willingness to take responsibility. And that seems to me to be fundamental to, to all of Scripture, that that freedom is the more difficult path, uh, and it means taking responsibility under God, whereas uh, servitude means you can have your basic needs met, but you are not really free to develop your calling at all under God. You're in servitude. And um, if you think about the, I think I always think about the experience of the Hebrews in Egypt. And the way in which when Moses had led the people out, the, some of the responses as things started to get more difficult, as the uh, situation for the Hebrews started to become more problematic, and it seemed like there wasn't much food readily available, and they were undergoing enduring hardships and so forth, they began to complain. And one of the things the complainers said was, um, you know, back in Egypt, we didn't have any of these problems. I mean, our, 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 you know, we didn't have to take these kinds of risks. We didn't have to cross the Red Sea. Uh, we didn't have to deal with the potential for going hungry or um, face hostile peoples. We had the protection of Egypt. We had, you know, the food and the shelter that we needed and so on and so forth. And they started, the scripture is clear, they started looking back to Egypt. And that displeased God. I mean, it's what's crystal clear is that that grumbling and longing for servitude, for slavery, was the thing that displeased God the most. With freedom comes responsibility, which is frankly just another word for risk. Right? Uh, you, have, you, have, you have a response ability as a human being under God, and you can respond to God's word to rule and subdue and take dominion and to step out into life under God and his word, trusting God, trusting oneself into the hands of God. And we see this in the lives of all the great kings and prophets uh, in scripture. We see it, of course, in the lives of the apostles, that they, that as they took out the gospel, as they sought to advance the kingdom, as David conquered kingdoms, they did so in terms of the principle of faith faith and, and trust in God. Um, and so we're all familiar with the kind of risk-reward uh, notion. 
that's more of a secular way of of uh, of phrasing things because the rewards aren't always necessarily in God's kingdom what we would like them to be. But the basic principle, Ryan, seems to me, in as we look at the balancing of freedom and risk, is the question of faith. Do we trust God or not? And are we willing to take responsibility? And freedom means responsibility. You've put it well. It's it's that you've got the freedom to fail. When you take responsibility, it means that there's a possibility that things may not work out perfectly as you'd imagined. But they also may go in a way that you hadn't even imagined in terms of what God is going to do and how he's going to deliver. I mean, we've probably all got testimony in our own lives. I've got testimony in terms of church plants and and school plants and the planting of the Institute where huge risk was involved. And I was warned against the risk by many people, but by taking responsibility and stepping out in terms of the principle of faith and trust in God and faith doesn't mean stupidity. It means, it means stepping out on the promises of God and in terms of the covenant of God. And that delights God's heart. Whereas the Hebrews, when they went out and they began to grumble, or those that began to grumble and complain, they were risking the ire of God's judgment because they wanted slavery. And you get the distinct impression in our culture today, Ryan, that frankly, people would prefer servitude, slavery, debt, um, restrictions, as long as they get their welfare handout than they would take to take responsibility for themselves. And the vast majority of godly people, I believe, would say we would rather take the risk and walk out in terms of faith and trust in God than surrender our freedoms in the name of safety and security. Uh, just, and, and that seems to me to be the, the, the choice. Do you want to take responsibility under God and step out in terms of his word or do you want the assurance, and it's a hollow assurance, of safety and security? It isn't a real safety and security at all. It's just the government taking on unimaginable levels of debt and pretending that the state can abolish death, that the state has the power to lock down disease, to lock down death, and to be your God, and to be your savior. And it doesn't. And I was very heartened uh, this this week to receive um, a letter, which I know you've seen, guys, from um, somebody who listens to our podcast recently, um, who said that uh, you know our work has given her the confidence and the boldness to write to her MP. And I just want to quote just a, a little bit from it, which I think speaks to what you're talking about. Um, she says, my 90, she's writing now to her MP. And in a letter to her MP, she says, my 94-year-old father who fought willingly in World War II, that's risk, was shot up crossing the Rhine to liberate Holland and has battled post-traumatic stress disorder for the rest of his life. And he's having his remaining days on this planet dictated to him by a government who does not love him. Premier Ford claims to be protecting the vulnerable, she says. He is not. I know many seniors who are reluctant to obtain medical care, not because they fear COVID, but because they fear if they contact, contract the virus and seek out care, it will be the last time they are ever allowed to see anyone they love again. Children and grandchildren, wives and husbands will be banned from hospital beds. Family will be left to ask nurses to hold the phone to the ears of dying fathers and mothers, praying that they can hear 
our love and prayers. And she, she uh, wraps it up. Let my family manage the risks we are all willing to take in order to be together and love one another in the remaining years I have my parents with me. Do not steal my children's grandparents. You are reaching into a sphere in which you have no jurisdiction. You have no authority in my home and in my family. Well, I, she is absolutely right. And I think that was a fantastic uh, quote. Um, there is right there the issue of, of, of risk or res- responsibility in the life of one's family and freedom. They want the freedom to take the risk in the life of their own family because they are ready to take the responsibility. And people who are ready to take responsibility are people who want to live free. And that is the fundamental biblical principle. If you want to live free in Christ, you have to take responsibility under God. You have to uh, commit yourself in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and then take responsibility to live out that faith in obedience and allow God to be God. And that seems to me to be the scriptural principle. And any attempt to say, I want to go back to Egypt, you know, the, 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 the state there looked after a servitude was better than freedom under God, because here you have to take all of these risks and bear all of this responsibility. Uh, that brings down the ire of God's judgment. That seems to me to be the heart of the biblical principle. So, Joe, um, I, I think we know this well, but uh, as wonderful as, as that letter is, I think there is a vast majority in our country that has been attempting to mitigate risk and defer responsibility by trusting in government for a long time now. Uh, we see that in our welfare, our healthcare, our education. So uh, my question is, how do we convince a group of people that have grown so comfortable with the illusion that our needs are best being met by the state? How do we how do we address this? Well, uh, I think we we have to uh, get to the root of the issue, um, which is what is the calling of the state? What is the calling of the church? What is the calling of the family? What is it that God requires of this in these different areas of our lives? And why is it that we would look to one agency, one or God-ordained institution, which is responsible to administer public justice, and ask them to be our God? And you're right to point out that this has a long history now. Really, it's post-World War I, but it, it was really a massive acceleration of, of this unwitting servitude in the huge growth of government and the welfare state after World War II. And what it's meant is growth in debts, um, increasing encroachment on our freedoms and liberties, and the omnipresence and indeed the, the alleged omnicompetence of one sphere of life. Um, and when you get into a crisis situation like this, you start to see why that can never be true. Uh, and this is why we talk about the principle of sphere sovereignty till we're blue in the face. Um, you know, as an institute and on this program, that God has ordained different spheres of authority, different jurisdictions, uh, because uh, the in the various spheres of life, uh, God does not ordain that there is a parts-to-whole relationship between any sphere and all the other aspects of our lives. 
Uh, and that it, that's true for the church, it's true for the family, it's true for the state as well. And I think we have to begin to, uh, it's hard. I mean, the process of trying to convince people, Nathan, is difficult. There isn't a silver bullet to this. We have to try and show people that if we accept the sovereignty of God and that God reigns over all and governs all, he's the only one with total authority. And therefore, no other aspect of life, no other sphere of life, no other sphere of authority can have totalitarian reach and jurisdiction. God alone has that. He delimits every other sphere of life. And if we deny that, what we're doing, even if it's inadvertent, is we're denying total sovereignty to God. We're saying that a certain sphere of authority or a sphere of life, like in this case, the state, can exercise a total jurisdiction and treat other aspects in parts the whole fashion. And of course, we could then point to the destructive nature of this in terms of human freedoms, human liberties, human prosperity. Um, and uh, we're seeing now how if you allow the state this kind of a reach to shut down the life of the family and the church and of, and of, and of business, the destruction of human prosperity, um, of human well-being, and indeed of human health, as we're seeing now the consequences come down in terms of stroke, heart disease, people not seeking care, our, our government-controlled health services becoming COVID services effectively. Um, we're seeing these consequences, and now we're seeing, we've, you started the program with it today, Nathan, poverty and the massive growth of poverty. So uh, you want to try and hold these facts in front of people, but at the, at the root of it is, do we believe in the total sovereignty of Jesus Christ the Lord, or do we not? If we do, we will want to limit the reach of all of these other institutions for our own good, for human flourishing, and, and for the glory of God. Great. Thanks for that, Joe. And we're approaching the end of our time for this podcast. Are there any final thoughts before we sign off for this week? So I think, let me, let me offer this concluding thought as we wrap up this uh, session, because I know that um, we have plans to deal with some of the other issues surrounding this and how we exegete particular passages of Scripture as it relates to our freedoms. Um, but I've been reading this week in the book of Revelation. In fact, the last few weeks, um, it's one of those tough books to wrestle with, of course. I don't think Calvin ever uh, himself published a commentary on Revelation, didn't really feel um, he had sufficient grasp of it. So I'm not going to pretend I have uh, greater insight than, than Calvin, but I've been reflecting on it um, uh, this week. And in chapters 12 through 14, I think it helps us wrap up some of the thoughts that we've been discussing. Uh, we've got this terrifying image of these beasts. Uh, one beast comes up out of the water with um, many heads, and then another beast um, with two horns uh, comes up from the earth. And um, obviously the book of Daniel and the prophecies of Daniel are in the backdrop and and um, need to be part of our awareness reading um, the book of, Reg of Revelation. But I'm looking at um, something from Calvin Seafeld, the um, Canadian philosopher, uh, and his um, uh, lectures on uh, the book of Revelation. And he says this, with the biblical um, Daniel background, it does not um, take much imagination to realize that the sea beast represents almighty power, a tyrannical overriding control by the sword become legal 
where might is right, no questions asked, no challenges allowed. Satanic rule imitates godly rule and also trumpets justice, but merciless justice. And like every evil principality and power contending for human allegiance, sea beast power wielding weaponry that comes to be trusted by trusted all by itself and exercised only for the security of the rulers. Sea beast power develops the creeping hidden absolute authority demanded by an idol. And, uh, you know, the beast um, frequently in scripture and in the book of Revelation, as well as Daniel there, represents state authority. And you see it as Daniel talks about the various states that emerge. The whole book of Revelation in that sense is, is in part a warning about the overreach of the beast, right, of the state as it comes to embody a sense of total power. Um, and he, Sievel goes on to comment that this has economic ramifications. He said this seven-headed uh, evil sea beast that John saw in a vision has always had an economic head too, which chews the poor to bits in every age under the blind eyes of us who have more than enough sustenance. And um, I thought, you know, th this, this image of a beast coming up and claiming total power and subsuming these areas, all these different areas of authority with then legal force um, and the way that that becomes abusive and the effect that that has on economics and on the poor. And he's exegeting, you know, Revelation 12 through 14. We need to keep in mind right now. And it's not that we have to say, oh, um, that our the Ford government or the federal government is self-consciously acting as the beast of Revelation 12 through 14. Which governments ever are acting self-consciously so, but we are, it is that Psalm 2, it's principalities and powers that lie behind it. Let's remember that. This is not a war waged against flesh and blood. There are principalities and powers behind the beast that wants to destroy freedom, take away liberty, as Revelation shows, persecute the saints, take away the freedom of the saints, and those that suffer the most are the poor and underprivileged. And, and, and those that benefit in these situations who don't seem to be harmed uh, are the powers themselves, right? The, the institutions of power themselves, those that exercise this power, their, their bills are being paid by the taxpayer right now. I'm not seeing any politicians falling out of work. Are you? Seeing their offices closed. No, they're sustained. So those that exercise this total power are the ones that seem to ride high, um, and it's the poor that are trodden underfoot. And that's what we have to be mindful of, uh, that this is oppression. When freedoms are taken away, it's oppression, and it's always imaged there for us for all of history, the image of the beast that comes out of the water. And it's got many heads, and some are economic, and some are legal, and some are, uh, so some are juridical. Um, and uh, some are are to do with food production, and everything. it's meant as it's multifaceted. Some of it's media, you know. I'm sure you know uh, we could label one of those heads media propaganda. And we're facing this, and we have to be mindful of those who are the victims of this. And it's always the underprivileged and the poor who don't have a way of sustaining themselves, and their businesses are closed, and their families go under.
Well, thank you for that, Joe. And uh, I hope we've given you all a lot to think about as we head into the fall. And uh, we encourage you to uh, check out our website, ezrainstitute.ca, to see past podcasts and to access our other resources. And we hope you've enjoyed uh, this Worldview Wednesday. And we hope you'll be with us next week. Bye now. It's passed down as a prophecy. Every year about this time